I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the current situation in Ukraine, we have with us once again, Dr. Elliot Cohen, who is our Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy. Dr. Cohen, it is so good to have you back. I know you're fresh back from a, a long writing trip, and we're happy to have you back on the podcast. It's always good to be back with you, Andrew. So some are calling this moment a pivotal moment in Ukraine, that there's a showdown approaching in eastern Ukraine as more villages fall to Russia, and that this could all but complete Russia's conquest of Luhansk. What do you think the situation is there on the ground? So I guess a number of thoughts. One, one is, you know, there's a kind of deceptive clarity to the reporting that one gets from Ukraine because we get these, these sort of strobe light flashes where, you know, you see tanks being blown up or a village being occupied. But the truth is there's what Karl von Clausewitz called the fog of war is still hanging quite thickly over the battlefield. So it does sound as if the Russians have made very incremental progress, which basically consists of them leveling villages and towns and then sending poorly trained infantry to, in to occupy it. And they get beaten up quite badly by the Ukrainians and they retreat and then they go back and forth and back and forth. It seems to me that the Russians are making very slow progress in you know, occupying all of the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts. But I would qualify it in a couple of ways. First, this is just one piece of a front that extends over 1,100 kilometers. There are things going on in other parts of Ukraine, too, including in the Kherson region, where the Ukrainians seem to be quite active, uh, where there's partisan activity as well as more conventional kinds of offensives. So there's, there's a lot of other stuff going on. I think the other thing to bear in mind is, you know, Russian resources are not infinite. And a number of observers, including retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, for example, have suggested that there's a good chance that the Russians will, to use a piece of military jargon, culminate in late summer. In other words, that's the point where all of your offensive energy is completely exhausted and you revert to the defense because you just don't have any energy left. There are signs that the Russians are under considerable strain. The fact that they keep on extending the age at which you can serve, you're getting more reports of combat refusals, very high casualties among the local militia that they've been using, who they're just using as cannon fodder. So I think what's more significant that's happening is a, a really grinding, attritional artillery battle as the Ukrainians try to mobilize and as they try to absorb the Western technology that they have coming in. How well they're doing at that is, is very hard to tell from a distance. But that, I think, is the larger story. Well, and there's been some reports, to your point, that the Kremlin recently replaced the commander of the Russian Airborne Forces and may actually be in the process of radically reshuffling the command structure of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do you put any stock in those reports? The overall Russian command structure for the whole war has been very bizarre. You know, when they launched the war, they had basically more than, I think it was nine different combined arms armies, you know, operating apparently each one kind of on their own. 
They then try to consolidate to some extent in uh, the South. There's been talk that they're going to relieve General Dvornikov. There have been other reshuffles. And of course, the Ukrainians have killed a bunch of their generals. So I think they, you know, the indications are pretty good that they, they are not satisfied with how they're doing. You know, one way you deal with that is you begin firing generals. But I think there's a good chance that the issue may be less the particular general officers that they've got than the more systemic things, which are a lot harder to fix. So, Elliot, Russia's attempted conquest of Luhansk province, which is, of course, a major part of the Donbass, you know, some analysts and reporters are framing it that if this actually happens, if the Ukrainians can't hold them off, this would be a major symbolic and strategic victory for Vladimir Putin. Do you believe that that's the case? I don't believe that's the case. I think, you know, there'd be some symbolic significance to it, but this has been going on for a very long time. The cities that they're going to take will be just fields of rubble. They will have paid a very high price for it, and it really won't bring their war any closer. The one thing that it could do is you can imagine if the Russian government wants a ceasefire, they might say, okay, well, now that we've occupied those two oblasts completely, we'll have a ceasefire. But I don't think the Ukrainians are in the mood to take that. And even if they're willing to accept the loss of Donbass, which I don't think they are, you know, and still leave other large stretches of Ukraine under occupation, and they're not willing to tolerate that either. You know, we don't really have a good picture of the mood in the supreme command of the Ukrainian forces. My guess is that they're feeling a lot of strain on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, as they gradually get Western technology and as they figure out how to operate it and even more importantly, how to maintain it, their inclination will be actually to continue to push and to to continue this fight. Because I think they also, I think they sense more than some Western observers do the weaknesses of the Russian military. Well, right. And a new British military intelligence report that has been in the media suggests that there's been extraordinary attrition of Russian and pro-Russian forces that, you know, they're suffering in the Donbass. You know, again, you have no idea whether these numbers are right, but there's one report that the Russians were saying that they had lost over 40,000 killed, which would be an enormous number. And it's not just the Brits. I mean, the Institute for the Study of War, I think, has done the best analyses of, you know, kind of the day by day. And their assessments each day would not make cheerful reading if you're a Russian general staff officer, I don't think. Now, President Zelensky has recently said that the Ukrainian army is really standing up and strengthening its defenses. And that includes in Luhansk. Is he talking about the pending arrival of longer range artillery? I think there's a combination of things, including just basically digging in. You know, the urban warfare is in some ways a great equalizer. Now, the Russians could just hurl vast amounts of ammunition and, and destroy things, but it's very tough to take cities without infantry. And the Russians are running low on, uh, certainly on trained infantry, but they may even be running low on the kind of third rate infantry that they're throwing in. There have also been reports that the as these longer range Western systems come in, not just American, but you know, they're they're French Caesar, the German I think believe the German self-propelled howitzers are finally there, they're gonna be getting these rocket systems. 
they're beginning to reach out and hit ammunition depots and things like that. So I think they, you know, I, I suspect the Ukrainians think that they can really bleed the Russians in this fight. I suspect that they feel they can give a little bit of ground and make them pay dearly for it and set themselves up for their own counteroffensive sometime in the summer. Let's talk about NATO for a second. There's a report in the Wall Street Journal that Russia has been conducting simulated missile attacks on Estonia, which, of course, escalates tensions along NATO's northeastern border. This has got to be a really dangerous game that Putin's playing. It is dangerous. But, I, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think there's any doubt that if there are attacks on NATO member states, particularly Estonia, which, you know, for a number of reasons, people are, are fairly attached to, you know, that the Estonians will invoke Article 5, an attack against one is an attack against all. I have no doubt that we and the Brits will re- respond, that there'll be American and British and, you know, quite possibly German and other forces deployed there. And the, the truth is, you know, the, the Russians do not have the conventional forces they need for war with NATO. I mean, it would be a disaster starting with the situation in the air. I mean, one of the things we've learned, I think, in this conflict is Russian Air Force is not a particularly good air force. And, you know, we've learned from other cases, including from the Israelis in in Syria, Russian air defenses can be beaten too. And so unless the Russians are, you know, simply ignorant, they have to know that they would be at a considerable conventional disadvantage. And, and look, effectively also at this point, Sweden and Finland, which are Estonia's neighbors just across the Baltic, you know, they'd be engaged too. And so none of this looks particularly good for, would look particularly good for the Russians. So I think you know, there, a lot of Russian military behavior is designed to intimidate, play to our fears. And, you know, I, I take it seriously, you have to take it seriously. But but I'm not sure that at the end of the day, they really intend to do something. But, you know, you never can tell. How do you think the Ukrainians are doing right now? You know, when you step back, it's amazing. They, you know, they beat back the attack on Kiev. They beat back the attack on Kharkiv. They've inflicted enormous losses on the Russians. Their morale seems to be holding. I mean, they've got they went into this with a number of big disadvantages, disadvantages of position, disadvantage of preparedness, you know, numerical disadvantages. I think on the whole, they're, they're holding out well. Now, you know, the one thing is that for the troops on the front lines, I mean, we're, we're seeing conventional combat of an intensity which people haven't really experienced, I would say, since some of the worst parts of the Vietnam War, maybe the the fighting in Way City. But it's really, you know, large parts of this are much more like things like the Battle of the Bulge in terms of the intensity of, of fire and over a longer period of time. So, you know, I am sure that people are getting tired and I'm sure some troops are getting demoralized. They've undoubtedly taken heavy losses. The critical question, I think, is what are they doing to mobilize and to regenerate the kinds of forces that they're going to need. I think a lot of people are worried on this end here in the United States that with all of our problems, you know, gas prices, inflation, the economy in general, that Americans are starting to lose interest in what's going on in Ukraine. Do you do you agree with that? The media certainly has it lower in its coverage than it has been 
to date? I, I would put it a little bit differently. Look, you know, we've made the big commitment, $40 billion. You know, the munitions are flowing. The training proceeds. The intelligence is shared. You don't need a constant stream of stories in the New York Times or the Washington Post or, you know, anywhere else in the United States for those things to happen. I think, you know, the American people are basically convinced of the justice of the Ukrainian cause. I think the larger, you know, the larger concern one should have is, you know, what one friend of mine called the possibility that the sleeping isolationist monster will wake up. You know, you're seeing some signs in the Republican Party in particular of sentiments in that direction. It is not the majority sentiment, pretty clearly, but, you know, it's there and it needs to be watched. But I think for now we're, you know, for now it's okay. Can it change? Of course. But I think at the moment, you know, there hasn't really been a concerted, serious and effective move to, you know, say we got to stop this so that we can get gas back down to three bucks a gallon or something. To me, that's the key question. You know, do you worry that while this hasn't been politicized thus far, that it could be as our economy gets worse and if our gas prices continue to escalate? It could be. A lot, I think, depends on the quality of leadership and the ability of the administration, and not just of the administration, but people who understand the importance of this war to explain to people why it's important that we stay the course and, you know, we accept some pain. Now, you know, the other thing that needs you need to remind people is that the inflation we're experiencing is not because of the Ukraine war. It's because we've been spending like drunken sailors. We've gone through this very, very peculiar period of essentially zero interest rates. And, you know, a number of economists like Larry Summers have said that's going to catch up with you sooner or later. And by golly, it is. But it's, it's not because of the war, though. Yeah, Larry Summers was right. Yeah, absolutely was. Yeah. Ukraine has been winning the PR war on this so far. And Zelensky is enormously popular in the United States, throughout Europe, throughout the West. What does it take, do you think, for them to continue to win that war? I would put a sharper edge on it. I think, that, you know, they are have been extremely clever in winning the information war and in a number of respects in making their case. And that's partly Zelensky, but it's not just Zelensky. They've been very good about making sure that their narrative of the war gets out. I mean, the Russians have just been clobbered in this space. They have been terrific at maintaining operational security about what they're up to. And th there's a lot that we don't know because they don't want us to know quite properly because it's a war. So I think that's, you know, it speaks to the quality of the people that they have working on this. I, this is not just a coincidence. Now, you know, in, in point of fact, you know, they really are the victims here. And this is a, about as black and white a case as one could possibly imagine. And Putin and Russia are easy to hate. Yeah, they are really easy to hate. And, you know, this is, is a completely unprovoked invasion and, and all that. And I don't see the Russians being able to recover that. You know, the other thing that's, that's interesting, which is related, it's different, is, you know, one of the dogs that didn't bark in all this is the Russian cyber attack on Ukraine and their attempts to control the information environment that way. It, you know, it looks like a very substantial failure. And I think that's partly because the Ukrainians are very good. I mean, they've been experiencing Russian attacks for a long time. Partly, uh, I think also, you know, the quiet intervention by uh, particularly some of the tech giants, Microsoft and Google in particular. That's another interesting phenomenon. Now, Elliot, what about these American 
soldiers or former soldiers that are being held by Russia. And then you could throw in, you know, WNBA star Brittany Griner, who's also imprisoned over there. These are some high profile prisoners. Yesterday, Russia said, and we're talking, you know, on Wednesday, June 22nd, the spokesman for the Kremlin said that these are not POWs and they won't be treated with Geneva Conventions in mind. What, what, what do you make of all that? So it's Russian thuggishness. It's also an attempt to, I, you know, I think that, that, look, I think their basic assessment of us is that we are weak and we will cave. I think they don't understand that this will just irritate people. First, they are prisoners of war. They are not mercenaries. They're in Ukrainian service. And that means that they, they have to be treated as POWs. If, God forbid, they, you know, the Russians decide to execute them, all that will do will be to anger the United States a lot. And it'll be completely counterproductive. The Russians, you know, they have basically, I think, a very poor idea of how to actually influence our opinion in this case. I, I think, you know, in some ways, the, the Russians have been on the back foot all the way through this, having made just one misjudgment after another. So I think this is, you know, another typical attempt to intimidate, but I don't think it's actually going to get them anywhere. Does this all come from Putin, though? Because, I mean, when you meet people like Lavrov, as you and I have interacted with over the years, Lavrov understands the West. He understands the United States. He knows what's going to make us furious. Is it just that Putin doesn't care? I, well, first, Lavrov doesn't have any influence. I mean, Lavrov is a messenger. I'm not sure he understands the West. You know, the more I've listened to these guys and observed them, the more I think that they're, they don't process reality the same way we do. And that's because they're products of the old Soviet system, but they also live in this system of lies and criminality that they've helped create, uh, lies, criminality, and corruption. And, you know, when you live in that world nonstop, then I think your sense of reality becomes skewed. Um, and so I don't trust them to actually understand us particularly well. Now, Elliot, you recently wrote for The Atlantic that it's up to liberal democracies to support a country that's fighting for all who share its values. Can you describe what you really mean by that? Because I think it goes a little bit further than the obvious statement here. And it's an important statement that you put out in that article. Why is Putin doing this? Why, why did the Russians invade? And I think there are two reasons. One, his conception of uh, what the Russian empire should look like. But the other was fear of contamination. I mean, but that's the real danger that Ukraine posed to his regime. Fear of free speech, fear of freedom of assembly, fear of the idea that the governed can change the people who govern them. Those are absolutely core values. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that's in the Declaration of Independence. And that is a mortal danger to the regime of Vladimir Putin. It's actually, by the way, also a mortal danger to the Chinese Communist Party. And they will see it as a threat. And this is a, an extraordinarily consequential war. If the Ukrainians win, in some meaningful sense of that word, then, you know, the momentum which has been moving against free institutions and free government will be reversed. If they lose, in some meaningful sense of that word, then we're really in a pretty dark 
place, which will have a lot of the feel of the 30s about it, where the dictators in various stripes seem to be able to go on the march and the democracy seem weak and divided and indecisive and, you know, unable to take meaningful action. So it's, the stakes are really very high here. Elliot, thank you so much for this insight today. It's invaluable as always. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 